this sense of oneness that we're connected to all life, the transpersonal, that we are the world. And so therefore, when we can really sense that, we change. Like the Lakota that take their child out and say, here's your uncle, the blue jay. Here's your sister, the tree. Like from birth, that narrative is enforced. And then it, it changes the way we decide to live. And we have to undo that I was plopped down in front of cartoons and thought that if I had the nicest clothes that I belonged. You know, I have to undo a lot that has taught me to be independent instead of interdependent. And the more I think we're interdependent and more we get the transpersonal, the more we want the right for everything to thrive. That's the question I'm asking. Why is that not enough? Welcome back to Possibility Now with Ethan Hughes. I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Today, Ethan will be exploring what is perhaps one of the most controversial and vital topics of our time, technology. Ethan embodies a very radical lifestyle in these modern times, living electricity-free and using no digital technology, computers, or the internet. We recorded this podcast using his landline telephone, which is the only modern communication device he owns. As an apprentice this past summer at the Possibility Alliance, Ethan and I would often discuss the impacts of technology and its roles in helping to shape our future. These conversations would directly and drastically change my relationship with technology. So listen with caution, Ethan's words are very powerful. While at times we share different perspectives, I, I always appreciate how much heart and soul Ethan brings to the conversation. It was a fascinating dialogue that could have gone on for hours more, so perhaps there will be a part two in the future. I'd love to hear your feedback and please share any questions you have for Ethan regarding technology and its impacts. All right, let's get started. Good morning, Ethan. Welcome back to the podcast. How are you feeling today? I'm doing well and also always a little nervous around this topic. <clears throat> hmm. How so? Um, I've just noticed in times of sharing this with lots of visitors, it's one that can waken a lot of defensiveness, shame. I know one friend said if I consider living in full integrity, I'll be ripped to shreds. And so, yeah, just bringing people into a discussion that often feels uncomfortable. So I'm, I'm really hoping to bring my full self present mm. for this topic about technology and its impacts. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. Is there anything maybe we want to do together to move our bodies and get the energy flowing or release any tension? <laughs> no, I feel like just sharing that helps me be more present. Thanks. Perfect. All right. So yeah, let's talk about what we're gonna what we're gonna discuss today and um what is it that you feel is most important to state right off the right off the bat here? I think the one of the big ones for me is what we actually need as humans to be satisfied, to be connected. 
and that that's kind of the biggest question I enter with and what is the best way for humans to feel connected and happy and with purpose so the that's I think the big movement with this question of technology and what what its function is you said what is the best way and um, I'm curious is there is there a way is there one way or is it how, how do you see that there are many ways um I think there's an infinite amount of ways that we can express being fully human and I see that in nature-based peoples and for millions and millions of years so many different cultures living with nature and each other um, and just the, I think the big question is how has the modern world not served its purpose of creating content healthy humans mm. so I don't think it's a black and white it's just looking at what are the potential costs we're not looking at and once we can uh, w one of my heroes gerrymander who wrote absence of the Sac sacred which is a amazing book of just looking at not if technology is good or bad but let's what he calls a holistic analysis and i think that's what i'm excited about it he says that's the analysis includes political, social, economic, bio biological, perceptual, informational, epistemological, spiritual impacts. It's effect upon children, upon nature, upon power, upon health. And I side with that idea is that most technologies are being sold. So a corporation has an investment to make us see the benefits of a car or a television and they actually in their studies hide the costs and what in absence of the sacred and what i'm kind of bringing forth is let's have a holistic of analysis and then see what someone may choose so gathering all the information both emotional spiritual physical mental and then seeing what we might choose at the other end of it yeah beautiful before we dive too deep, I'm wondering if it's beneficial to define some terms just to start. Uh, for example, what is technology? It's such a, a broad encompassing word. And I guess from a very macro perspective, is there really a difference between technology and nature itself? Um, presuming that all technology originally comes from what we, I guess, colloquially refer to as nature. So what is the difference? How do you define um, nature and technology and humans and where is their overlap and where are their differences? Yeah, I, I like Charles Eisenstein's definition, quote, the power to manipulate the environment. Technology is the power to manipulate the environment. So if a chimpanzee uses a stick to get bugs, it's increasing its power to manipulate the environment because it can get into small holes that its finger can't get into. And then progress is the accumulation of technology. So you move from using stick tools to stone to bronze, there's a progress. What I like to add in technology is that it's not neutral. 
that we have to also assess when a chimp grabs a stick and uses it to get bugs. There's no extra harm related. There's the food exchange of the chimp eating the bug. And so that's what I want to look at too, is what is the amount of harm a technology causes? And that then allows us to evaluate its use for humanity in the world. And benefit to harm analysis is I think really important. How much benefit are you getting as compared to the harm that's generating and to just look at it as broadly as we can and as fiercely in reality as we can. Yeah, beautiful, thank you. It might be worth reminding viewers a little bit about your personal relationship with technology before we, we dive too deep into the topic. Um, do you mind maybe giving a brief overview of, of your own life journey? Uh, I presume growing up with technology and TV and then where you are today, which is living electricity free with um, certainly a lot of different technologies, but um, not digital or electronic or electricity based for the most part. Do you mind giving a brief overview of your own personal journey? Yeah, I think when I started looking at the impacts of being in the sixth biggest extinction, uh, the climate change, microplastics, just seeing that the world, which I believe is part of me, just dying. Um, I, I started to look at what does it mean to watch TV, drive to the mall, go to a movie. I've come to call the biggest conspiracy I think functioning in modern humanity is that we have to kill, enslave, maim, injure, or oppress life in some way, people, cultures, species, nature, to get our needs met. And it seems to be just a natural acceptance of, of this. And I started to question that and say, like, there's got to be, when I look out my window right now and I see trees growing, how much actual benefit to that ecosystem pulling sunlight from 93 million miles away, holding the soil, a tree giving 25 to 50% of its photosynthesis energy into the soil for other life, nesting, shade, the oxygen carbon exchange is just here. Everything I look at, the grass, the bird, the swallows flying by the nest, everything is living and actually creating a cycle that promotes more life. Like everything moves towards a climax ecosystem, like a coral reef or an old growth forest where the most life can be in that, for example, square foot of a rainforest or a coral reef. And I, so I just see the universe is moving towards maximizing life. And I love a quote that says a, a planet with less life is less of a planet. Like there's more loss of this beauty. And of course there's cycles of events where there's mass extinctions and then new life comes and amazing diversity. And so when I bring humans in with our modern technologies, high tech combustion engine, things like that, 
I see that wherever we are, life often, for the most part, decreases the diversity in a city or the diversity um, in modern agriculture. So it was just moving in a way that wasn't aligned with my heart. It's like, okay, there, there is beauty in it. And that's what I think is really important when we, when we just say technology is good or bad, we're missing that I live with ele- without electricity by choice and I enjoy moving by candlelight and I enjoy slowing down at night and so many. Hey, um, I don't know what happened. It's just you uh, dropped out of the Zoom meeting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what Were happened. you talking for a while after? I was for maybe like five oh, paragraphs. And then I was like, Tucker? Oh, uh, shoot. <laughs> I can pick well, it up from the candles. Okay, sounds good. It's, uh, it's ironic that you were talking about living by candlelight and then our technology dropped. So maybe yeah. it's um, maybe it's the universe sending us a sign. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to start back where wherever feels natural okay um yeah answering the question of my life arc is right now i'm on a landline and we live in candlelight and i noticed that once i was living in candlelight i was calmer i was slowing down i started to be in the rhythms of dark and light different than when i was in electrical spaces and we found a lot of visitors had that same experience. Just a, our kind of trademark was every night's a candlelight dinner at the Possibility Alliance, that kind of intimacy and connection to fire. And also the responsibility that with, with the candle, you have to be aware and very present about where the candle goes. You have open fire and you, you, you're in relationship with the fire where I find with high tech, you just turn on the light, it's on, and you don't have to think about it. And I like that being in relationship with the elements and with nature. And I also wanted to share a piece about the beauty in technology, being mostly car-free for 20 years. It's been much harder with COVID, with public transportation shutting down and things this year. I think I've driven more this year than the last 19 to get to important events like Black Lives Matter uprising. And, but the car has inherent beauty. It's really fun to pile into a car with a bunch of friends and you're really close together. And if I had had a big cardboard box in my living room floor and asked everyone to jump in it, they'd be like, why? (laughs) But it's this really little pot of intimacy and you go someplace. So I think it's important to realize Without shame, there is beauty and function attached to, for example, a car. And we know that there's a cost. It it took a global extractive economy and a war machine to get all the materials to build the car and the oil. And it's affecting the climate. And one drop of gasoline pollutes 50 gallons of water. So there's also a cost. So we have to look at both and not just, I think once we're black and white, we we lose a very important piece. If we just say cars are bad, we're like, no, I've had some really important pieces of car. A car allowed someone to drive to a sick grandparent. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's both. And so we're trying to, again, do that holistic analysis. 
And that's where I like to approach technology. And then being creative, the replacement economy from our last conversation, I love that idea of how do we do things on our heart's terms? So, okay, next time, let's take the bus to Portland for the rally. And now we are moving with less harm and we're connecting to more people, building community. And then in my life, we decided to create a biking service group. It's so I tried to do something that was more fulfilling than a road trip. So we're on bikes, dumpster diving for our food and serving whoever we saw dressed in wild costumes, dressed up as Compassion Man and Queen Bee. And so then I had replaced all the joy of a road trip and enhanced it, less harm and more connection, more meaning, more joy. So I like to approach it that way of how do we, how do we be creative and imaginative together and help ourselves move from more harm to less harm. And any piece I celebrate, when a friend calls me and says, I got rid of my SUV and got a much more fuel efficient car, I celebrate. One atom of, of moving in the direction towards less harm is beautiful. And everyone is a different level of risk. I think that's also so important that for me to stop biking and walking would be really scary because I'm used to bike time for someone to get out of a car and take a bus, it's the same amount of risk. So we have to honor wherever someone's on the spectrum moving back towards more health in how we live and more connection. Beautiful, thank you. I just wanna recap for viewers since um, we had that technical interruption, but um, yeah, I, I apprenticed with Ethan and Sarah at the Possibility Alliance this past summer, and um, there's no propane use, there's no electricity, there's, um, there's no digital technology, no social media, no internet, there's a landline telephone, and um, there's an electric um, solar panel, the electric fence for the goats, but it really is living without any type of uh, digital technology that we know in the modern world. And it was quite an experience for me personally. I, I definitely, I had previously been living on a remote island in Maine, um, mostly off the grid. So I wasn't coming from uh, urban life. So it wasn't a huge transition for me, but it was like dropping into that next level. And it really did feel that I was, I slept better. I had more um, I had more crazy dreams at night and I felt more in touch with those dreams. I felt more in touch with the lands, um, the, the natural cycles, the weather patterns, um, biking into town. I, I felt like my body was in really great shape. And, um, and, but the best part for me personally, the part that was most healing was being by candlelight at night in a small cozy cabin and having everybody playing musical instruments um, you know, together, like actual live music, and we were all sharing food together. And it was community, but it was also community without the sometimes the interference of digital technology that, you know, even just that five second act of just checking your phone to see a text message can really, I realized how much that can break the energy of connection when you're together with people. And because there is no cell phone service and there's no you know, digital technology at the Possibility Alliance, um, that wasn't even really a possibility. It was all of us were fully present with each other 
um, or with a great book and or with the, the candlelights or cleaning the dishes. And it really was healing is the, is the best word that I can use to describe it. Um, so thank you, Ethan, for providing that space for, for people like me to come and, and drop into and, and to heal. And i um, so grateful that you've taken the radical steps in your life. You know, you spoke about the spectrum and honoring wherever people are at, and you're certainly quite far down on one extreme end of the spectrum. And um, I, even though it's not necessarily what my soul feels called to, uh, that's not the lifestyle that my soul personally feels called to live at this moment in my life when I'm 30 years old and a filmmaker and making podcasts and posting, uh, writing articles online. And so I do use technology in a way that I, I feel is in service of my soul. Um, but I see how important it is to have people like yourself that are creating these spaces that can remind us of what it's like to be um, as deeply connected to ourselves and to nature and to one another as possible. So thank you. I just wanted to, to share that. Yeah, thanks. I, you know, I think one witness when I was growing up that really began my journey was like looking out my window right now and I see it trees out there like a here's tree that's pulling sunlight from 93 million miles away with photosynthesis 25 to 50 percent of the of the energy it's creating from the sun is food it gifts to all the microorganisms around it and other trees and it's securing the soil lessening soil erosion it's holding water and it's creating habitat and shade and food and I look at that and then I look at the swallow flying and I look at anything other than humans. And I'm like, wow, it's life is actually enhancing it. And when I, when I look at life, I, as a studying biology and being a marine biologist for parts of my life and marine educator, everything on earth is moving towards a climax system. That's like old growth where in the climax system is where the most life and diversity can be per square foot, a coral reef, an old growth forest. And that's where everything through succession moves towards in the natural world and the universe. So that's what I'm aspiring to emulate is how can my life become like that? And if we look at this moment, humans culture for the most part is doing the opposite. Wherever humans show up like a city, there's less diversity, there's less life, there's more pollution there's more destruction and and that's also rural with monocultures so how do we shift this to emulate what all other life is is emulating and i i think that's really important i and i don't know when i mean it's interesting to talk about candlelight when the, when the i got kicked out of the zoom room um i was saying that i i've come to realize when i look out my window that I think the biggest conspiracy, and I may have said it before, but the biggest conspiracy I realize is that we have to kill, enslave, maim, injure, oppress life, species, and cultures to get our needs met. And I just, I just couldn't believe that's how the universe is built. And I, again, I can see it right there with the tree and know that it's not true, yet we have forgotten that it's possible for humans to live interconnected. So I think that's a big question. And Another piece is some friends we're visiting who, who live a much more modern life than us. 
a, a pretty typical life with two cars and computer and other aspects of, of the modern world. And when they visited, we just went to the beach and we were just us in the beach and some food like goat cheese that we grew on the land and a wild salad. And and they were, we were there for hours. The four children, my daughters and their kids were on the beach just looking at crabs and eels and seaweed. And we were so connected. And at the end of the week, the joy was that that moment on the beach where the parents were sitting, looking out on the ocean, the kids were playing. And we were there for most of the day. And I just realized we we actually can thrive without all of these things. Like what we're actually seeking through the computer is is connection. Like belonging is the number one human need. And that's, I think it's really important to realize no amount of technology, whether it's green, solar panels, computer screens, will help our plight, which I feel like is our disconnection from the world. And we see that with social media and how it has been built to have the dopamine effect and get us addicted and it's amazing that Facebook and social media actually now it's from so many studies increases depression, suicide, loneliness. Uh, my friend Billy Baker just wrote an article in the Boston Globe. It was the most um, looked at article. The biggest threat facing middle-aged men is in smoking or obesity. It's loneliness. Um, and that just the fact that computer and emailing and everything actually does not guarantee the face-to-face -face connection. We do something here called face-to-face -face book where we're just together connecting, sharing our challenges. So I think a big part is not, not even asking if technology is good or bad, but asking, do we actually need all of this to live out our full human birthright, to live healthy, connected, and so it opens up a, a, a big rabbit hole. I, I want to take for a moment the um, perspective of, I guess you could say technologists, ones who are advocating for technology as a way forward for humanity. I think collectively we can all agree, no matter uh, where you are in the world, that, that we're at a, a crossroads as a human species and that um, whatever is happening now isn't quite working. And so there's different camps, different ideological camps that have been created um, that are advocating for different paths forward. And one example is um, Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are a way to decentralize uh, currencies and to um, create an, you know, empower individuals and um, create more of a global currency. And so there's a lot of of good behind the philosophy of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Um, however, from, and I'm not an expert on this topic, but this is just a little, the little that I know. Um, from what I've heard is that the servers that it requires to hold these Bitcoin accounts are using an enormous amount of energy and, um, and that it's become a huge problem because a lot of people who are sort of more eco-environmentally conscious want to support something like um, creating an alternative currency to the to the US dollar and the Federal Reserve, um, but feel that they're also increasing climate change at the same time. So how can 
maybe this goes back to what you're saying with the um, the cost benefit analysis, but how how do we navigate that as how do we know when using a technology to create um, quote unquote good or positive change is uh, is worth it and is worth the exploration? And how do we know when we should just um, stay away from something like that and go back to kind of the old ways of living or the, the more time-tested ways of living? Yeah, it's a great question. And that's probably why I was feeling a, a little bit of nervousness at the beginning because it's so massive and there's so much paradox in the world right now. Uh, my, my response, not just with Bitcoin or other technologies is first of all, let's ask what are we using the technology for? So for example, I think we could remove all plane flights that are just for, I'm gonna fly as I have friends, I'm gonna fly to London for the weekend and check it out and come back. And we're, we're seeking experiences often without even knowing our home, uh, exploring our home. I, I noticed after COVID, a lot of people said they started to go on walks where they never walked before and in exploring the nooks and crannies of their local environment and how meaningful that was. What if we only did flights like my dear friend, Chris Moore Backman, who wrestles with this living in Oakland and doing a lot of work in the prisons and anti-racist work. He struggled because he was choosing to be uh, plane free, not fly because of the impact to the environment and global warming and the potential existential crisis of, of we're already in it. This one of the six biggest extinction events that's human caused. And he decided to fly to Palestine to show up for that protection of the kind of cultural genocide that's happening there. So I think that's a great question is first is what are we using it for? When we look at the computer, so much of it, one of the top 10 pornography sites had 80 billion hits or we can look at kitten videos or all these other things that might for the moment be meeting something that is lacking in the person, but we could just start using it for, like my friend who does global permaculture using massive technology to try to figure out how to have millions of acres shift to less impact and to have regenerative agriculture. So I think that would be the first stop start is, okay, that's great. If Bitcoin shifts us from the banks in the Wall Street holding all the resources, great, that's a first shift. Let's celebrate that, but we don't stop there. Let's keep shifting the system where let's imagine again, we don't need money anymore, that we can start existing on trade and belonging. And well, I want to talk about that later, but uh, just to jump into it now, I think this really important, amazing piece of the primal matrix is what qualities nature-based people have that are missing completely in modern times. And one of them is belonging and security in the world. So basically from my honored time being in intact nature-based communities, it was amazing to see that once you're born, you are guaranteed food, you're guaranteed a place on the land, you're guaranteed shelter, you're guaranteed education, 
everything from birth till death, your birth is free, your death is free, (laughs) nothing is a commodity. And so you have this experience of totally belonging and security that, oh, I don't need to make money or I'm going to lose my, my apartment and be homeless. So this has existed for millions of years, that kind of security. And so we can reimagine a world because it's existed for tens of thousands of indigenous nations and cultures. And that's where I think it's a huge leap to start to imagine out of the the actual constructs we were born into. We just breathe. We don't even think about capitalism. You go to a mall, you give money and you get something. That's just something that was created that can be unwound and rewoven into something else. So I, I just want listeners and myself and inviting you, Tucker, to imagine you're born, the community bringing in or like looking at what your gift is to the community and you are guaranteed health, healthcare, healing, home, food, belonging, that you're sacred, and there's no need to pay for it. There's no need to pay for mental health or healing. And I think it dehumanizes us. And the, the stress in modern culture is that we don't actually belong. We have to pay for belonging. We have to pay for therapy for someone to listen to us. We have to pay for healthcare. We have to pay when we die. I mean, it's a whole huge industry uh, for death and birth. And I love all the movements, I, like midwives and people who are midwives and bringing birth back to home and reclaiming it. And there's now a huge movement to like, you can have the body of your loved one and prepare it. And like our friend Tamar at Dancing Rabbit Eco Village who passed away and was buried under a tree and in a, in a wonderful woven shawl and there's now this beautiful tree like we can reclaim these things slowly but just imagine that you have everything you don't need to get an a in school or have a master's degree to get everything you need including your vocation and your gift to your community we just have to imagine that again beautiful (laughs) i I'm wondering if we could put on the evolutionary perspective for a moment and those who um, who really study evolution have this theory that like basically everything has developed for a reason. And so there was a survival reason why capitalism and technology came into creation and why we stopped living like nature-based peoples. And I'm wondering what your perspective is on that. Um, why is it that we find ourselves in this modern world where I'm living in New York City and amongst 8 million people that are squished together in 13 square miles? And um, why is it that we've, why is it that indigenous cultures are so few and far between at this point? Yeah, you know, if something evolved, what I would call a, a culture that is not perpetuating the kind of massive harms of like genocide, for example, I would be like, okay, then there's this arc. And the arc, yes, it's happening. This is what is right now. And so what is it also is I'm, we're sitting here at the possibility line saying, and evolution is moving us to ask, how can we be a tree? How can we be in a culture where we don't have to pay for our belonging? So both are happening. But I, I do find that when when looking at history and most importantly, listening 
to indigenous and black experience that there was great harm that cause was caused to create this and that Europeans came for what I feel like was unconscious desire for meaning through greed and through extracting resources, tobacco and cotton and then slavery and then a genocide of thousands of indigenous nations in North America. And that drive, as Tananisi Coates says, is like the the black hand that thread the cotton through the cotton mill. Uh, that force of the slavery of people and slavery of the earth is the same thing that has brought us to a brink of planetary unraveling, which is, it is unraveling now. We have, you know, over a billion people aren't guaranteed food and shelter or refugees. So we're seeing the unraveling. So I think, it, yes, we're here. And we have to, for me, look at what brought us here. And what brought us here was a lot of war domination and the goal of a lot of technology, if it's primarily, I think where the warp started to happen is when we were like, oh, oh my gosh, now we have a basket. We can gather food more quickly so we, uh, we can all eat. The major motivation was what I felt one of goodness and connection where when our motivation is we can have more money so we can have more things. That's when the, I really feel like uh, we lost our way, which obviously is what is happening. So that is what happened. I'm not going to have any values on that, but it's really, I do have values about genocide and racism and the death of the planet. It's not, my heart doesn't align with it. So I just trust my heart. But I think now if we just look at COVID, for example, so these pharmaceuticals are making billions off of the vaccines and are not releasing the patents of them. So there's just ultimate access to everyone on the planet. So you have the U.S. who can buy 800 million plus vaccines and other countries can't even begin a rollout. So this is the kind of hoarding and scarcity in what I would agree the age of separation that is keeping us separate. And technology, I feel, just speeds up the ability to create greed. So yes, when there was war and you just had hand weapons, you could only there's only could be so much damage or if I have a saw and I'm feeling really greedy with trees, a handsaw, I can only cut so many saw, uh, trees in a day. A chainsaw allows me to do much more damage, a nuclear bomb much more. So I just think what's happened is the ability to create harm increases with high technology. And so then our unconscious parts can do incredible destruction with one button like Hiroshima. And I feel like in this moment, I just, I know millions of people are really longing for something completely different. And we are in an incredibly hard moment because of that, because again, there's a lot of beauty embedded in um, technology has allowed us to be far away from each other. Airplanes, we can live 3000 miles from people we love. We have, we have faith, we have um, zooming and these other technologies that kind of let us be connected to people, but we're so spread out. So the imagine of getting out of planes or the computer would mean 
I can't see the people I love. That's a serious deal because belonging is our number one thing and we are a social animal. So we've set ourselves up where it's really hard to imagine. But I, I like the words of Leah Penniman and then I'll, I want to go back to what's arriving in you and amazing uh, black farmer, Soulfire Farm, and also is recently writing about human supremacy, like not just white supremacy, but seeing the challenge when we have a few thousand right whales and 1,000 snow leopards left in eight, almost 8 billion humans. It, it really is becoming, I think one of the challenges is we're facing the massive monoculture. We, we say farming in a monoculture is unnatural or one species in the forest is unnatural, but we are becoming a human monoculture. Everything we do, um, we're in a one species monoculture. A city is just built for humans. Internet's just built for people, cars, and I, diversity creates health. So we are, we are in a, a, quite a predicament. And Leah Penniman just says, so if you're in contrast, really depending on the empire, depending on a system that's destroying you for all your basic sustenance connection, you're not going to be able to really resist that system because you're intertwined with its success. So we right now, I mean, it's, it's the paradoxical piece that we are, we're on zoom and I'm on this landline. And so we are participating in the impact. Well, I hope to go over some impacts a little bit later in some ways to like how to simple questions we can ask about technology to see where they lead us. But it is so paradoxical, but how do we use this to shift us to something again, where all people and all species can get belonging? It's a, well, I mean, this whole topic is just massive. So I'm just throwing out places in our own life and our own movement that we are happier. It's shown stuff does not create happiness. Accumulation of billions of dollars does not create happiness. But look at how look at the madness right now. People have hundreds of billions while others are dying. And there's just that life doesn't work that way. If all the water was stored right here at the Possibility Alliance for us to be safe and to be make sure we will live, everything around us will die. And uh, there's just a bigger spirit question here that wraps in technology. Beautiful. I love that. How I've been imagining the future, and of course, this is just one of, of infinite scenarios, but essentially it's a decentralized local network that is connected globally. So there's places like Belfast, Maine, for example, where there's all these hubs of um, different communities that are coming together and there's this village feel and then there's individual um, families and communities within that, that larger village. And then, for example, you and I are, are not living in the same region, but we're connected globally via technology. And perhaps you can keep in contact with people all the way across the world. I mean, we live in a moment where theoretically, actually, I'm sure this has happened, where somebody from every single country on planet Earth can all be on the same Zoom call at once. And we can all share our different cultures, our different experiences, our different wisdoms and lineages and um, traditions and problem solving for whatever crises we're facing. And so I, I see an aspect of technology that can be integrated into this 
uh, local living um, lifestyle that, that you've done such a beautiful job of, of cultivating. Do you see a world in which that is possible where we can go back to living, um, you know, drastically reduce our individual carbon footprints, living locally, living in community, but still connected globally through some form of technology that allows us to create a global human species and, and um, really a global living, thriving planet and ecosystem? That's a big question. <laughs> and I, I think the, there's a few things that come up is one, I feel like all high tech computers, planes, solar power, I, I think part of it is an attempt to avoid the needed massive cultural shift. Um, I think the shift has to be so huge that we, I mean, a lot of the indigenous groups I work with won't, won't actually participate in, in things over the internet. We have to realize that when we're on the internet, it's such a limited form of communication. We're not in each other's energy fields. We're not, we're looking through, we're a screen. So it's a secondary connection. I don't believe we can exchange all ideas and culture through the internet. Um, the difference in the field when you're holding space for someone crying over Zoom where you're doing it in person, it's worlds apart. Similar, you're looking at, a scene of a beach on the computer to being on the beach. We feel it in our nervous system. Our nervous system is built for not a secondary image of a human or nature, but to be in it. So one, I don't, I, I think there's a lot less happening over Zoom than people think there is. And that's why I think there's massive loneliness and depression and people with iPhones, uh, young people have triple the rates of suicide. There's something not working there, and we have to we have to hold that as an important piece. And the next one is this idea that we're always thinking technology will save us in the future. Like this is in the World Fair, like we're gonna end disease by 2000, year 2000, and all these chemicals and pharmaceuticals, and everyone's again making a profit off of it. So we're profiting off of sickness and disease and what do we see now we have we've been humbled by corona we have we have infections that our antibiotics can't deal with um we're, we're just seeing that these promises are never being delivered i mean we were supposed to be in utopia by now and i think that's important to realize this like promise of technology in the future maybe in the future there'll be a technology that doesn't harm us, but we have to look at right now, the, this computer, the laptop requires 200,000 miles of transportation almost to the moon and resources extracted from up to 50 countries. That's what's happening now. So yes, if someone finds another technology in the future that doesn't have that impact, great. But if we look at a great documentary, The City of Joy, it has a, um, where coltane is being extracted from the Congo and you see wherever these uh, mines are, are these uh, centers of huge warfare and, and also massive mass rapes, hundreds of thousands of women right around these coltane. So we see the rape of the earth and rape of the women and people of color simultaneously um, happening 
and we have to, I just think we have to make the analysis based on this moment. So there's, there's not enough resources, for example, for everyone right now, 8 billion people to have access to flying and computers. So then who should fly and who should have computers? These are important questions. 40% of all computers in the United States, the 1 billion poorest people have no access to the internet. The next billion have partial access. So the poorest of the poor whose voices we need to hear right now aren't even showing up on this Google call. So we're, we're dealing with a lot of the, the middle class. And I know there are paradoxes, for example, George Floyd, what happened wouldn't have happened without a cell phone that filmed the public murder of George Floyd and that uh, cell phone devices protect people of color. And this is a huge reality. So there has to be the bringing of wisdom like Sherry Mitchell and Leah Penniman, who are black and indigenous leaders saying like, we are all destroying ourselves on the planet. So we need to shift back. And if we shift back, we're not going to be hoarding resources and we're not going to need military and police to protect. That's why we have police because you lock your house and you protect your goods and there's scarcity. So we need to move back both culturally, emotionally, spiritually, physically in a, out of this paradox, taking into consideration that if I tell people of color to get rid of their cell phones because it's killing the earth, um, that's another form of oppression and control. But we do have, one of my friends, a black woman said, well, I realize I have ancestry to the Congo and here I have my cell phone, which is actually linked to the genocide that's happening there. So there's, there's just these, again, these paradoxes, but we, I just feel we need to wrestle with them and not just have this idea that the computer is just the new democracy because we see that actually only a few players are controlling everything. When you do a Google search, people are controlling what comes up. You could look at the social dilemma and so much of the videos coming out that it's again on the on the whole scale maybe for a few people the computer is helping them be more in their life but for most people we're dealing with addicts uh, that people who deal with addiction say it's harder to get youth off of social media than it is to get someone off a of crystal meth because the way it was programmed to do that so there's just a huge reckoning of what do we do when it's the U.S. military that's the number one funder of computer science research? What do we do that one computer requires the weight of a African rhinoceros of over 47 pounds of chemicals? And, you know, it's 700 materials and chemicals that are impactful. The ecosystem create are needed, created for one laptop. I think if we had to experience the direct experience of cost, we only get the benefits. And I agree what you're talking about. There are benefits, people connecting, ideas getting out. But again, if we went to the computer store and had to bring home a rhino-sized vat of 700 chemicals, when I asked people that question for real, only a few would say they'd still take their computer home because then they'd, in their apartment, they'd have to have this huge thing. But these chemicals are being exported to... Southeast Asia and other countries, again, then we have oppression from one culture to another. So to me, when I look at it all, I'm just saying, even though I agree with the benefits you're stating, 
the cost for my heart for for us to just go in this direction without question is too high. And so now the moment is how do we transition in a way that we have the cell phones to spread information and to, again, that important thing, what are you using it for? When we're just texting and distracted, most people I talk to when they get on the computer, they're like, oh, for three hours, I went in this rabbit hole. It wasn't what I wanted to do. The shifts start to happen when computers are only in libraries, for example. I saw a big change when people would just bike to the library once a week and they only used it for what was essential for, for culture change. And they realize all those other hundreds of hours weren't really serving them or the change of culture. So it's, it's going to take a lot of um, a lot of vision and creativity to collectively um, shift this. But I think again, it's important to realize as it is now, incredible destruction at a time of species unraveling is happening. So we're just at an existential crisis. You know, if someone feels like flying around the world to teach NBC, I'm not, that's beautiful. People are learning NBC to hopefully communicate better so there's less theft and violence and war. And at the same time, as it is now, we see what has happened from the 70s till now, 60% of all life is gone from the planet. So that means if we keep continuing and technology and impacts are speeding up in China and India are all modernizing. We just know that we have just by simple math with species, we have 60 years left before all species are gone. So I'm not trying to say what's right or wrong or an answer, but what we do know if we continue the current path and not falling into the future of technology will save us, we know that there's gonna be incredible harm and if we realize the harm to the nature is the same as harm to us, it'd be like, would you cut off your finger to use the, you know, to fly everywhere? It's like, I don't think most people would. We're in a really tough moment. And I agree with you. I don't know what is going to shift us out of this. And there's a lot of paradox, but I, I do know that that tree out there and all other life is doing something beautiful that I want to emulate. That piece I can know is true for myself. Yes. Thank you for sharing your heart and your wisdom and your honesty. And the only thing I'm an expert on, and I'm not even an expert on this, is my own life experience. And recently, this past winter, I was living at Pachamama, a community in Costa Rica. I was there for uh, three months. It felt more like three lifetimes, but it was uh, three months. and. When I was there, my technology, they did have a uh, little internet cafe area where there was Wi-Fi connection. Um, and, but I would probably check my phone maybe a half an hour every day. Sometimes I was there for an hour and a half if I you know, made some calls to friends and family back home. But I didn't feel any need to be on my phone. I didn't, there were all these um, emails and websites that were, you know, normally would have been super interesting for me to dive deep into, but because I was in community and I had so much direct connection and support and I had purpose and meaning by being at this place and all the beautiful workshops that were being held, I just didn't have an, a desire to go on to mm -hmm. um, my technology. However, I did check in with you, for example, I did um, talk to uh, Sean, who was in 
where was he? He was in El Salvador at the time doing some really beautiful work. And I was helping Frederick LaRue with his documentary project about climate change. So that technology, even though I only used it for a small period of time each day, was connecting me to people and to places and to family that were doing um, really beautiful work. And, and I felt that um, I felt that my small periods of time on technology helped contribute to the more beautiful world that my heart desires to see. And so I guess that's what I'm advocating for is we have technology, it's absolutely everywhere. And yes, I, I pretty much tried to eliminate all technology from my life. I sold my laptop, I downgraded my phone to this really crappy <laughs> cell phone service plan that basically only works with Wi-Fi. I, um, I just started reading books all the time. I started just shopping locally and, and not online. And so I, I really went hardcore in that direction for, um, for well over a year. Um, but now I find myself back in New York City momentarily and I'm on my computer for probably about eight hours a day. And I'm doing all things that I feel are, are also really beautiful and beneficial. I'm having amazing conversations. I'm on um, Charles Eisenstein's Money Networks group, which I've been, uh, a lot of people have been enjoying this podcast. Um, so if you're listening from New and Ancient Story, shout out to all of you. Thanks for, thanks for being here. And um, I'm recording this podcast with you right now on my laptop. And um, I'm writing essays about my own personal healing and transformation story and publishing them on various different websites. And it's creating, it's getting actually a lot of traction and it's really beautiful to hear people's responses. So I, I guess I struggle with the idea that um, if we all just sort of drop technology 100% and go to living uh, sort of a Luddite-esque lifestyle, that it's not that I, I don't see that that's possible for some individuals. Certainly you're an, an incredible example of that. It's just that I don't know if that's gonna work for all 8 billion people on the planet starting tomorrow. So what is the transitionary period between the, the future vision that you have for the world and where we are now and how can people begin to make small action steps that allow them to maybe continuing continue to use technology when it serves them and when it, it's serving the world and the planet and the, the, the future world that we want to see? And how can people, yeah, like really step into the mud of the messiness of this, of this topic and apply it to their own lives, regardless of where they are on that journey? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And I think the important piece is I, I notice how few people are involved in technology reform. So making technology healthier and also more just. So Europe is way ahead of the United States and demanding the high tech computer firms to have zero waste. So they get back their computers and use all of the heavy metals and the resources from 50 countries. And, and those laws are starting to pass and there's pressure. And very little of that is happening in the United States. So I would say first that if you're going to use any of these technologies to get involved in the reform of these technologies, um, one of the big places is the industrial consumer complex externalizes all the costs, as we know. When I go to Ecuador, there's all the resources of growing coffee and bananas and and precious metals being extracted to the U.S. and 
that has a huge cost to the ecosystem and the human cultures in the US. If we read a lot of environmental racism that where does the externalized impact, the coal plants, the toxicity from computers, you realize it goes to those communities of color. 70% of all toxic waste and in industry in the United States are in communities of color, indigenous or black, Latina, Latina, Latinx. And that's a place where we can start shifting that. You know, when I'm in Detroit and see these, or, or Silicon Valley downstream, one person from Silicon Valley visited the immigrant families that kids had brain damage and everything else from this incredibly, again, I, I, I think if people just do some research, it's amazing that I don't, you know, have a computer or go to the library, or use one or have an email, but I have all this information about the impacts of computers, both socially, psychologically, and environmentally, that I think we need to learn them. And so how do we shift the largest Superfund site that's affecting mainly brown and black people? We have to advocate and get involved or it's never going to change. Um, it's never going to shift because as long as people are buying them and the, and the, the industry doesn't have to become anti-racist or clean up the destruction of, of the ecosystem, um, they're just going to keep being driven by profit as we've seen with the, any other technologies, the lead industry, the mercury industry, there's just, we're still feeling the effects of a very toxic planet. So I think that's the first part is get involved in the reform and putting pressure to shift the industries that you're participating in. And also my next piece would be like, what about, uh, yeah, that kind of reduction where one, a hundred people are sharing a computer and using it for most important things. And there, are, and how do we start shifting? Cause I know hearing from the queer trans community that it's a lifesaver to be on a computer if you're in, I lived in Missouri, in rural Missouri, if you, you need to connect to other queer and trans people and it might not be safe in your little town of 400. So it's, it's literally your lifeline to, to a community that's going to support and protect you. So we need to evaluate with each person's situation, how do we transition and get the support that um, people are needing? But this is, um, this is a piece where I just really encourage people to get involved with the transition that, that can happen on all fronts. So if you're going, for example, it's massive technologies, computers and planes that require food to come to a restaurant. And if it's not local and organic, then that food being exported from another country where people are in food scarcity. And so the shifts can be as simple as the first shift would be now I'm going to go to local restaurants with local food run by BIPOC folks. So the economy is starting to shift and otherwise I'm not going to go to a restaurant or we're going to have friends create an amazing meal and go over to their house and not even have capitalism. And so we start to become more and more on our track. So now we're going to friends' houses and creating amazing local food and I'll cook this traditional food, you cook this. And then we can move to oh, now we're sharing a little garden and becoming producers again. And that's, that's something too that I would offer is that technology is often so passive. We're watching and we're not participating. Like you said about music, we can listen to music, 
but most musicians say playing it is the highest connection to it. And again, how do we how do we become creators again instead of passive consumers? And it's a wherever we are at, whoever is listening in, it's just to begin to look at your own heart and ask the question: Is this does does it does this represent what I believe in? So uh, I'd love some of these um, seven criteria for the adoption of new technology by Will, Will Braun. His question in which is again, the existential moment, does it represent what I believe? He's analyzing a car. No. Oh shit. The car clearly fall, fails the test, but I just don't know if we can do the rural thing without wheels. You know, but to be in that tension of, no, this does not represent what I believe. The rape and destruction of the Congo for my commuter is not what I believe. And so I'm going to make sure that the industry changes. I'm not just going to passively be like, whoa, here's what's so great. Um, and there's, you know, there's a whole list, importance of the negative view by Jerry Mander. Totally recommend reading Absence of the Sacred. Is that um, to he, he has these attitudes and one, we often see what, how it benefits us. I think this is one of the most dangerous pieces of psychology. It's like, whoa, look what it does for me. But because we're interconnected, we have to ask the question, what does it do for all of us? What does it do for all of us? Birds, ocean, what does it do for all of us? And then, then the transition will really start happening. And, you know, as you mentioned, all these amazing things that computer does, which is true, it also not only increases the ability to talk to people across the world, it also increases the rate of acceleration. Banks and corporations can move money faster and clear cut faster and sell faster. And there's more commerce happening now with Amazon. You can press a button. So Shopping is easier now. You don't even need to leave your house. So it's, it also accelerates all this harm. We look at surveillance. We haven't even talked about surveillance, um, surveillance, capitalism, um, corporations, government, police, uh, how we're being controlled. Um, it's speeding up. Can I pause up you for a minute? Yeah, yeah. I'm totally in alignment. I guess my... My perspective is that it's not technology that's necessarily doing this. It's the consciousness of the humans that are creating the technology that is doing this. And I get that they're probably, a, you know, playing into each other. The, to me, the internet is just doing everything faster. So it's also speeding up the amount of people who are um, coming into a new way of being. And by, for example, listening to this podcast and, and making radical changes in their lives, like even just looking at how Black Lives Matter and Me Too have just completely taken off in the past few years. And, um, you know, patriarchy and racism, which has been around, you know, for thousands and thousands of years is now um, really having massive chunks, you know, chipped away slowly and slowly and surely and at an accelerated rate. That's just kind of extraordinary if you look at the macro picture of, of human history. And for all the destruction that's happening at an accelerated rate, there's also the positive change happening at an accelerated rate, which in a sense makes me think that the technology is just a mirror for the humans that are using it. 
And so how can we evolve the human consciousness in order to make the technology better serve the future that we want to live into? Yeah. Yeah. I think partly is we're in the age of information and I'm taking a risk. You know, we talked about the podcast and I've been interviewed by a few people. And so maybe five hours of my year or 10, I do an interview that's going to be on the computer as a piece of like, maybe, because maybe it's changing people. Information doesn't actually change us. We're in the age of information. We have so much information, yet so many people are still dealing with depression, addiction, and that's speeding up in an incredible rate. And so there's no guarantee that information will change you. I, I, I know this by watching people who read everything about um, undoing racism, but they don't actually take that step of reparations or to act we become. When we take action, something new becomes and culture shift starts happening. So what we're doing here is a bit of a risk. We're causing harm with the hope that the information will activate people into actually becoming what their heart wants them to become. And so that's important to realize that we we don't know what's happening with information. Transformation is that when you actually act in a different way. So I know when there was the Arab Spring and the uprisings, everyone hailed the internet, but people on the ground said, no, don't take it away from the people. We've been training people for years and years face-to-face to learn how to do nonviolent revolution. And if we look at Black Lives Matter, the other pieces is the main, the main leverage of that are the people who are in the streets and the people who are connecting and the people who are making it happen in real time. And so that is the, the, you know, some of the most amazing movements like the abolition movement, which millions of people were participating in Europe and America. You know, we have to, again, remember that it is people and people connecting that is the main driver of change and that once we know that we can know yes the computer can help and it doesn't stop the question of how do we create technology on our hearts terms that it represents what we believe i don't think any on anyone on this call believes that mainly people of color and huge microchip processing plants that have 3000 times the chance of bladder cancer is in line with their heart or that extracting resources from 50 countries and a lot of with with military involved in that extraction is in line with our heart. So this is the reckoning where we have to say like, yes. And also we have, I, I believe that if it's not in line with your heart, it's our responsibility to again, get active in shifting environmental racism, get active in shifting the rape of women in the earth for no matter how great these technologies are, if they lead, lead us into the completion of the sixth extinction. If I ask someone, would you rather have a movie in the computer or diversity of life in, in your own life? We know, but again, that's the piece of, we have to wrestle with the costs. And if you go to a Hollywood movie and someone was out front and had huge billboards of all the impact of what trees were cut down and all the oppression that happened, not that the movie isn't a beautiful form of storytelling, so I'm not doing the black and white, one negates the other. Cars can be really fun to go on a road trip and it has cost. 
that people then might choose not to go to the movie because they know the cost. Corporations, both computer, cars, they're all hiding the cost. Our entire culture hides the cost. And that's all I have. That's all I'm saying is let's look at them, see how they land on our heart, and let's act with that information. And then the real transition to where we can show up to a life that's like the old growth forest. I don't know what it's going to look like. I'm not saying it's going to look like the possibility lines, but I know if we align, keep aligning each moment with what our heart wants, which is not harm, oppression of people, racism, we're going to end up with a culture that is more healthy. I'm not so convinced that that's what exactly what people um, are most interested in at any moment is not harming others. I think perhaps if it's in someone's direct vicinity like if there's a cat being tortured in front of them then that would be different but if there's a cat being tortured a thousand miles away and they don't know about it I'm not sure how much they would necessarily care and some developmental psychology studies of ego development um, point to that we go from egocentric so basically caring about our ourselves and our direct immediate needs to ethnocentric caring about our community our people our those who identify in a similar culture to um, world-centric, basically caring for, for all people, to cosmocentric, which is caring about all life, including the more than human world. And so is there a case to be made that, um, I look at factory farming, for example, and there's tons of people, including myself just a couple of years ago that I, I knew exactly what was happening in those factory farms. I had seen the documentaries and I was still eating that meat. And I just don't think that I really actually cared. Um, it's not that I didn't have the money or the access to healthier food. I just don't, I think that my immediate desires to have a delicious hamburger were more important to me at that stage of my development at that point in my life than um, protecting a cow in Iowa somewhere from living a horrendous, tortured life. And so I don't know, I, I guess I look at my own psychology and my own personal development and I, I question how much people do care about the environment, about um, the impacts of technology, about racism and all this. And I think it's shifting very, like at lightning speed, again, compared to the, the macro picture of human history. Um, and so there's a massive shift in consciousness happening. And there's an argument to be made because of the technology and the abundance that we have you know, financially, um, that many in the world like don't have to worry about their basic needs and survival needs as much on a daily basis. So we have time to worry about um, what's happening in Afghanistan or the Syrian refugee crisis or the impacts of cell phones and miners in Africa. And I'm curious just about that argument, that perspective and, and where you come where you come in on that. Yeah, well, I think your first part, I totally agree. What you're saying is information without direct experience isn't as effective in shifting our heart. Mm. Um, but people at a certain point in their life, I have seen one piece of information can change a person's life in a moment. They, they learn something like, oh, I didn't know that, and they act on it. So it's kind of mysterious, but I do agree that information is not as effective as direct experience. And that's one thing I'd really advocate is the people who I see live the lives that really 
move towards a life I want to see are people who go to the super fun site below Silicon Valley and they talk to the parents that have given birth to brain damaged children because of the computer from the um, computer industry and they realize who's living there again 70% of black and brown people live in these areas like Cancer Alley in the Mississippi um, because of white supremacy and privilege and things like that so I think that direct exposure is what, you know, when I went and saw the nuclear weapons plant in Kansas City and stood there and saw this gigantic thing being dug into the city, I was transformed. I, I witnessed and what arose in me was not a right or wrong, was just like a beautiful action of love flows towards suffering. So I think one thing that's important is for us to go to, there's um, as close to our neighborhood as possible. You know, I was in Detroit, go to the most polluted um, zip code in the nation. And then I stood there and saw, you know, a K through five black children with a fence separating a huge coal incinerator for electricity. That, that, that is, again, running those hard drives for the cloud. And so when I when you expose yourself to it, something in our neurobiology shifts. And so that's what I'm just inviting you and everyone listening is like, how do we have a direct experience of both beauty and joy in the world we want to live and the direct experience of the cost so that we can ask ourselves, does this align with our heart and change it? And I think I agree with Margaret Wheatley, a, a great book she wrote so far from home um, about that, she feels our greatest threat is distraction and that we are so distracted because of cell phones and texts. We can't pay attention or notice things changing. Etta, my daughter, notices that every year there's less birds singing. 10 billion songbirds lost uh, in birds in North America since 1970. That's a pretty high cost for me because they're part of you know, our extended family. So, but if people are distracted, they're not going to notice to watch um, the loss of this incredible diversity. So, and I also, what, one thing that I think really stands out for me is I, I, I read like your Better Angels, a lot of these books that say, hey, look, physically, there's more people who have are over the poverty line. My experience and from the stats is, 75% or more of Americans hate their jobs. 70% of Americans say they're extremely lonely. Um, we're in a massive episode of depression. So we also see that, yes, physically what you said is true, but statistics are problematic because Americans have a many Americans, especially white Americans have a lot, but we have a chronic obesity. We have ill health. We have depression and it's not as simple as saying we're above the poverty line. What are the spiritual, emotional, mental conditions, the most mental health seen in human history um, from all the studies? So to me, what's physically happening has to also be measured with what's happening spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. And so that's, again, where I come back to the holistic analysis is, yeah, let's look at what's happening spiritually, what's happening to our kids what's happening, you know, to just ask those questions, what's happening perceptual, you know, that most teenagers spend 36 hours on a screen and now 
every living adult in the U.S. spends more time on a screen than in real life. That to me is something we need to look at. Like we're not actually with each other anymore face to face. We're not interacting with all the other ecosystems. So yeah, I mean, we can pull out some, I'm not arguing that there's not, as you're saying, great aspects of what technology has brought us. What I'm saying is we can only choose with our heart when we have taken in as much of the benefits and costs and let them sit in our heart, not in a way of information, but really feeling into the deep level. And then I feel like our path starts to shift at that point. And so I'm yes. inviting Thank you. people to learn any technology you learn using, learn everything about it. Who's making profits from it? Who created it? What are its costs? What are its benefits? And again, we usually know the benefits. When I say to people in a circle, what are the benefits of the computer? They're all real. We can communicate across the world. I can talk to my grandmother who's 40 miles away. Um, I have access to all this amazing music. I can share amazing information. All that is, is true. And then when I say who can list the impacts, um, the list is pretty small, both environmental, psychologically, um, you know, we, we, one great point is we look at decentralization and human autonomy is so important and the computer requires the most centralized system in human history to actually create it with having to go to 50 countries and huge cleaning rooms for the microchip. And if I was gonna create a computer myself, it would take so many lifetimes because I'd have to make all the machines that get the precious metal and, and, then I also then realized, well, it is true that the computers we're using right in this moment require slave labor and oppression. And we're having this conversation and it's impacting people. So to, to, to just sit with the uncomfortableness before moving towards um, some future idea. And I think sitting with the uncomfortableness is what's going to arise something new and unexpected from the human heart. The paradox, sitting in the paradox. Absolutely, I love that invitation. I, I just wanna say that I, I actually feel that we're saying the same thing, just maybe coming at it from different perspectives. And I also just wanna make a note that what I'm, the questions I'm asking are not necessarily reflective of my personal opinions. I'm uh, partly what I'm doing as the host is, is is thinking about what viewers might be feeling, what they might be thinking, what counter arguments to your perspectives might be and, and putting those out there. So I just don't wanna conflate the two. Um, but yeah, I guess what I'm saying, what you were speaking about our, our human needs reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I, I think that's why more people don't know about the, the, the cost and the harm that technology has because to spend hours researching that means that somebody has all of their other more basic needs met. They have their needs for belonging and security and health and um, survival and food and shelter um, already met. Otherwise, if people aren't gonna spend hours researching the harms of technology um, that it has on Congolese people, if their other survival needs aren't met, they're gonna instead you know, go online and try to connect socially or meet up with their friend in person or go get, some food or figure out how to make a living and how to take care of their children. 
And so I think we're saying something similar. My, my point is that a lot of the harm is being um, exacerbated through technology and through industrialization in general, in part because it's an attempt to meet our human needs that haven't yet been met, been yet, been uh, met yet. <laughs> That's a tongue twister. So I guess I feel a little bit of um, maybe a, I'm a quite an optimistic person in general, but I feel a little bit of pessimism when I hear this idea of like, oh, let's just all go out and 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 do what our our hearts really desire to not create any harm, um, because I feel that when our more basic and emotional needs aren't yet met, that a lot of times harm is done towards another, especially when it's an invisible other that's not in our direct vicinity. Um, in order to get those needs, those more basic human needs met um, for ourselves. And again, I've seen that happen in my own direct experience in my own life. So I'm not just talking about a theoretical other person, but I, I see that psychology playing out in my own, in my own life. And so my question is, how do we address that? How do we how can we both honor those who are able to take these steps like you and me to reduce our impact in the world while acknowledging that um, there's billions of people around the planet? Like, I guess, what would you say to a young person in China whose parents and grandparents have worked for, you know, worked tirelessly in order to provide um, some security and some basic income. And now this, this young person in China is moving to a city and getting a laptop and a cell phone and the family is so proud of him or her because it's the first time where they're really able to you know connect in a modern way um do we want to take those opportunities away from from people that haven't yet had the the experience of living in that globally connected um lifestyle that technology has able to afford many in the western world from my positionality i don't it's a complicated question because I don't feel like I can choose a pathway for another human being or certainly someone from another mm. culture. I can read books like Ancient Futures, which looks at what happened at Ladakh as it industrialized and the destruction of culture and connection and the rise of addiction and materialism that happens across the board. And that um, I can just ask the question for anyone, are you really connected are you really feeling purpose? And it's not about reducing harm, it's more for me about emulating what I see every other species emulating, which feels more whole and more beautiful than what I am seeing in most of the modern human culture, mm -hmm. the extractive culture. And so again, it comes back to, I, I don't know, I mean, it, we're we're dealing also it's important to come back to we're dealing with addiction if we're dealing with free choice then i'd be like oh this is where it's supposed to go but hundreds of billions has been put into propaganda to have us consume and get on the computer and computers are given to free to kids when they're in kindergarten so it's not just happening it's happening through an actual intent for for profit and for control. So we have to realize that we have to, we're dealing, including myself with addicts 
And so in that case, I don't know if we just take an example of someone who's addicted to alcohol, they may drink themselves to death or they may have a moment, an epiphany, a grace, a friend intervene that says like, is this really serving you? And then they, from what I know, when someone's not addicted, they usually have a much more um, meaningful life. If we're talking to hundreds of people who've gone through AA or other systems. So I think we have to break addiction and stop the propaganda machine in the consumer machine to actually stop and take a breath and actually decide what it is we want. Because what, what from the view here, you know, reparations and candlelight and everything else, this view or this, this imperfect attempt to returning to what can create life and how to attract both human and animal and plant life here. It was strangely enough, I feel like that attempt is under attack. Like talking to Daniel Swelo, the man who quit money, said once he gave up money, everyone just tried to attack every hypocrisy and every piece. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm just trying to not use money. Like capitalism creates harm. I would love to see that same energy turn towards the propaganda machine and the consuming machine and the addiction that we're all facing to, to really undo that so that we can take a breath and stop for a moment and then choose from a place that is coming from deep inside and not from a cultural momentum or a paid momentum from hundreds of billions of propaganda or from I'm just doing this because I'm addicted. And so I think there's so many undoings that we have to participate in before we can actually take a breath and ask, what do we want as a human race in this moment? And part of my work is making sure everyone, as you said, I totally agree, someone who is barely making rent, a single mom, and is about to be evicted and homeless with their kids, what I need to do is make sure that I'm showing up at the Belfast soup kitchen, that I'm moving money, um, large amounts of money to the poor and to BIPOC communities, and giving everyone a chance to take a breath and to see what it is they want and to ask that single mom, what is your vocation? How is it you want to create community here? How is it you want to protect what you love? And so when we, you know, that when we begin this question of what's appropriate technology, what's appropriate, um, it, it overlaps, that same question overlaps with the human condition, mental condition, racism, ecocide, you know, livelihood. Um, it's true without money in capitalism, if you don't get it, you will be homeless or you will die or starve. And I, again, come back to, I'm not going to let go of a vision that has been lived for a long time in human history that you don't have to pay to belong. And I, I'm, despite the paradox, I don't want to let go of that. Um, one really simple thing to be really practical is we have a definition of appropriate technology. It's really simple. And it, it's also very difficult to live out. We just have three things. One, appropriate technology maintains the health and integrity of the biotic and cultural communities it is made in and are used in. 
and appropriate technology can enhance the life, vitality, and diversity of these communities. I'm excited about that, and I'm still not even close, but I'm still going for it. Two, all people have equal access to the resource and skills to make the appropriate technology, as well as to use it and master it. We're not even close to that, too. How do you have equal access for all people? Um, as I said, one billion people don't even have access to computers. Um, how do we how do we make sure there's a just transition? And three, appropriate technology brings us closer to each other and the ecosystems and species we live with. Appropriate technology promotes relationships with living things. And that's where I just come back to is I know for me, face-to-face -face with people in nature is always a more incredible experience than anything on a screen. So therefore, I want as much of my time face-to-face -face and with nature and as much of my time making sure other people, those incarcerated in our insane prison complex to be freed, the abolition of prisons, poverty, you know, all these things have to be shifted so that we have access again to just each other and the beach. Um, and I, I guess I'll just say that that's the question I'm asking. Why is that not enough? And then if we say it's enough, now the hard work of shifting where we're at to a place where everyone gets to experience that enough, which is the work of undoing colonialism and racism and ecocide and, and human supremacy. And it's just the work that I'm so excited to be engaged in. And I want to thank you for this conversation because it is a really complex one. And I appreciate all your questions and, and uh, yeah. There was a part of me that was wondering the, the first half of your answer, if a part of you was frustrated that I was pushing back and asking counter arguments against what you're presenting and yeah, I'm just wondering how you feel about that. Is that has that been frustrating for you, or? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's essential um, because a holistic analysis means we we wrestle with all the questions, and I I'm aware and why I think the nervousness at the beginning is the answers are also very imperfect. Uh, it, it's almost eight billion humans with the the incredible momentum of high technology <clears throat> and the incredible unraveling of the climate and the ecosystems. It is, it is, it's not easy to wrestle with. Um, so I'm just, any of the energy I feel is just like, I, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm just continuing to come back to the question of, does this align with my heart? And if no, how do I help shift it? And, mm -hmm. and yeah, and how do I, how do I also have for myself and every other human being on the planet this primal matrix that modern people struggle to have, the sense of belonging and security in the world that I talked about, um, this sense of personal integrity and capability um, that we, we just know our giftedness and can participate in something with purpose and meaning to uplift life and community around us. And this sense of oneness that we're connected to all life, the transpersonal, that we are the world. And so therefore, when we can really sense that, 
we change like the Lakota that take their child out and say, here's your uncle, the blue jay. Here's your sister, the tree. Like from birth, that narrative is enforced. And then it, it changes the way we decide to live. And we have to undo that. I was plopped down in front of cartoons and taught that if I had the nicest clothes that I belonged, you know, I have to undo a lot that has taught me to be independent instead of interdependent. And the more I think we're interdependent and more we get the transpersonal, the more we want the right for everything to thrive. Yeah. Not just not just the human world or not just me. And how to do that is where I'm like, we're making a very imperfect guess of living into a culture with no harm that is moving resources to those who, so they can have access to living their full vision. But yeah, it's, thanks for asking that. I have felt uncomfortable and unlike other interviews, just tensions in me because it's, I just hold with great love. We are at a, a true existential crisis for our mm -hmm. culture. And we're all trying our best to, to, to either just survive or just feed our kids or to help new experiments show us what is possible. Yeah. You mentioned following our hearts, listen, tuning into our heart and following that, that deeper wisdom. And one last place where I just want to push back for the, for the purposes of creating a, an interesting conversation, which is that my guess is that Elon Musk is following his heart. My guess is that he deeply, deeply loves the work that he's doing and feels it's important for humanity. My guess is that Steve Jobs felt the same way, that Bill Gates felt, felt the same way. Same with the vaccines. You know, there's Bill Gates has been created into this boogeyman, but I'm quite confident that deep down in his heart, he really feels that what he's doing is what is best for humanity. And, and I know just on a more personal level, many friends that have started different types of online nonprofits and different types of social networks or podcasts or documentaries, and they deeply, deeply love and feel that that is the work that they're meant to do, even though it um, either includes technology or is 100% ar around technology. And so I, I guess I'm curious about that specifically, how we can follow our heart, our intuition, our soul, and how it embraces technology and maybe again, the paradox of that. Um, or do you feel that maybe there's some sort of um, blockage that's preventing somebody like Elon Musk, who's creating massive rocket ships to go to Mars? Do you feel that he's not actually tuning into his heart and that um, maybe he's deluded in some way? How do you feel about all that? Oh my gosh, <laughs> you're asking really great questions that we could, well, I, how I respond to that is if I look at a lot of people's trajectory, as I do, I do believe for a large majority, they are wanting to help in some way, whether themselves or their family or culture. So I can use, I you know, I don't want to use Elon Musk, but I want to use a transition of like David Corton, who wrote Corporations Will Rule the World. He started business school and then decided like, oh, development in, in other countries will actually uplift humans and got involved with all these aid groups and really thought like, oh my gosh, we can, we can uplift people. And then as it happened, 
he's like, well, let's try it this way and this way. And finally he realized a kind of corporate capitalism model to bring into other countries as we did doesn't help. It actually destroys the culture and creates, as we have now, high technology also has the largest amount of haves and have nots in world history. And so we have, you know, one percent owning so much and then a bottom 20 percent battling for what's left in capitalism. So David Court and then, yeah, I believe he was following his heart and then his heart led him to question taxi stop and take a breath and say this is not working and then he went on to launch the s magazine and write when corporations were the world and really look at how uh capitalism is not working so i feel i'm going to add that i've seen many people's life including people who are in the pentagon with military realizing oh my gosh the premise i didn't ask is is there really an enemy you know, this one article was like, well, first it was the Vietnamese and then it was the Russians and now it's the Muslims. Like we always, the war machine always has to put in an enemy and they started to question, is there really an enemy? And this person went and visited the Vietnamese and all these people and said, no, they're also struggling. And so once we remove the idea that there's an enemy, we question the largest military budget in the world. But those key key moments of growth when people are questioning i just see people they move towards there's something better than bombing people to create peace so i don't i i I do believe with cellist glending that we are all traumatized from industrial culture you know born in for many people in a hospital with lights on us and and in a very uh, dehumanizing way um, and so we, we live, as Tara Huska said, when I was out at line three, we live, breathe and eat and wear trauma. And so when we have a trauma response, we're not able to, we get restrictive and we get fearful and there's scarcity. So I believe that as Afi says, like how in the world could you know, there's no such thing as an intelligent rich person because how in the world could someone hoard that which could give life to so many that there is, I believe, a trauma happening that creates people to have so much money and so much wealth and have to, for example, um, the responsibility of Gil Scott Heron said, like, we're on welfare and I can't get food, but Whitey's on the moon. Like, the human family in the ecological family when we're paying 70,000 for moon boots in that wonderful song by Gil Scott Heron that what what could his community get instead of the moon boots but why why are we going to the moon that our hearts I do feel are closed and because they're closed we are lost in thinking what we actually want and do do millions of people want to be addicted to heroin and painkillers do millions of people want to just do internet porn? And in the moment, they might say, yes, like this is giving me life. But I think it's because our hearts are closed and we have unprocessed trauma. And so I think um, that healing has to happen. We have to do shame work and trauma work and really unearth what is the yes of our heart. And yeah when it when when it leads to accumulation to the scale of 
Bill Gates or Bezos, like I, it, it doesn't, it's not the world that I want to see. Uh, the haves and have nots and the kind of hoarding. And so I, I believe as David Corton, there can be best intentions, but often that leads to a lot of harm. The Christians had, they thought they were doing good from putting indigenous people into the schools and a lot of progressive people for that time thought, oh yeah, we're helping them by re-educating them. And so we have to be really careful. Um, I like what Gandhi said is, if I'm wrong, at least I'm not killing people. You know, that's a key point of like the nonviolence or, or living simply so others can live that there are huge planetary risks that people doing GMO and massive alterations of the mind through technology are huge experiments. And I, I feel like it's also a time of humility and, and yeah, there's a lot of, and myself, there's just a lot of ego that seems to be driving a lot of that, that the drive maybe isn't connection, but it's power and recognition. And that's just things we need to look at. I'm not going to yeah. tell Elon Musk what he should or shouldn't be doing if he's following his heart, but I can ask, let's look at the impacts or let's look at what else, what other million amazing things could that money be doing besides sending us to Mars while our planet is in collapse. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I resonate with so much of what you said and I, I'll post the link in the show notes to an essay I wrote recently called I Am The Conspiracy. And it traces back this, this story, this moment that I had when I was 24 years old, I was flying in a business class in one of those really luxurious lie flat seats all the way down to San, Santiago, Chile in South America. And on the airplane flight, I watched a documentary called Fed Up, which is about the, the sugar industry. And it showed the harm and the impacts that sugar from soda and our food products have um, on our bodies and our brains. And basically compared sugar to cocaine in terms of its uh, addictive factor. And I was on this airplane flight to Chile to go film a 7-Up soda commercial. And as I was watching it, just my heart sank. I realized that what I was doing, I realized the harm of what I was doing. Um, and I had this pretty much an existential crisis and thought about stopping and not doing, you know, basically flying back to America and walking off set and not filming the commercial, but I didn't. Um, a different part of me ended up winning that battle. And, and I, I made the commercial and uh, a year later I went to Brazil and I made another seven up commercial. And, um, yeah, that, that trajectory of working on projects that I knew were creating harm in the world continued for about five, six years until I finally had, um, a lot of depression and burnout and I felt very disconnected from my soul. And I had, um, the come to Jesus moment that I, I thought I, that I almost had on that plane ride when I was 24 years old happened six, seven years later. But my, my point is that I see the patterns that are on display in very dramatic ways in people like Bill Gates or Elon Musk or whatever, I see that in myself. I see that in my own life story. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, narcissism and sociopathy and whether, you know, the rich and the powerful or global elites that are, you know, secretly controlling the world. And my, maybe there's something to all of that, but I would also say that it's just part of human nature and human psychology and that um, that actually all of us have a part of creating the system that we have currently. And 
so that the essay goes on to talk about my own personal journey of um, basically switching, having my heart desire something else and, and the journey I've taken over the past three years to heal a lot of the trauma that was probably causing some of that, um, some of those actions for me to not listen to my heart and instead um, listen to the part of me that wanted the, the paycheck and the luxury and the, the power of being a director on a big commercial project. So I invite viewers to take a peek at that essay if it's of interest to you. Um, Ethan, I know we're running pretty tight on time, but I, I have one more inquiry, which is that there's a spiritual perspective perhaps that one could take, which is to say that consciousness, like you said, you, you've been calling it nature, that nature it wants to create as much diversity and as much life form as possible. And there's also a perspective that consciousness wants to create as much diversity as possible. And a lot of technologists say that technology is a form of diversity, that it is a new form of life that is coming on, coming online. <laughs> no pun in, no pun on words there. Mm -hmm. And that um, basically, like I just watched this documentary called AlphaGo, which is about this AI computer that beat the world's best Go player in South Korea. And it was a really beautiful, touching documentary. And you can, again, see that the people that are creating this AI and this technology are clearly doing it from a place of heart and passion and love for, for the work that they're doing. Um, but there was also this moment of like, wow, this is really possible that AI could outsmart humans in the near future. And so there was a little bit of, um, a little bit of hesitation on the part of the makers of this technology as to whether what they were doing was even a good thing in the long run. But my point is larger than that, which is that is technology in all of its forms and even just online looking at all the different websites and the trillions of different ways that one can interact with the internet, is, is that not also a part of diversity and of new life forms coming online? And we are in the sixth um, mass extinction. Um, and at the same time, we are gaining all of these new forms of technology and so obviously if uh, nature ceases to exist then there will be no home for that technology to proliferate. So that's an obvious argument to that perspective, but I'm just curious what else you would have to say about that frame. I just know I'd rather have songbirds than robots. Uh, if I can just answer is that something <clears throat> of plastic and metal that isn't isn't in a sense living and of cells and birth can it reproduce i always say this is the possibility lines like draft horses can reproduce themselves and then you have another draft horse to share with a friend and then but tractors if you put them in a barn and play bomb chicka bomb bomb the tractors can try any position but they're not going to like one of the symbols of life is this seeds come and they spread. And I just feel, I mean, this is where I don't want to go intellectual, but just feel like there's something about the story of not enough that we don't have enough. We don't understand enough. And that I think there's something where it's leading us we've the computer and this high technology has been along for a long time and the trends of desertification extinction loss haves and have nots depression you know all these things are increasing so 
I can just say like, look, this is where this has led us. And as so many indigenous people say, which I really, really love the voice of Sacred Instructions or Red Alert by Daniel Wildcat and Sherry Mitchell and all these amazing voices that it's like, look where this is lead us. Can we, can we just try something else and see if there's more life? Cause I, I I'm not, um, humans and living systems are enough. And so I, I feel like a lot of the going to Mars and robots and AI come from this lack of just as it is. I, it's, it just feels in a cellular way that I, when I'm interacting with a car or a laptop, if I go to tea with my laptop, it's just again, or AI, it's a different experience than another endotherm or ectotherm that's like living and has come out of this. I, I, I think it's, a, it's coming out of disconnection and colonization and patriarchy and warp. I, I just, for the, and that's where I say too, it's like how my challenge to all of them is, okay, can you do it in a way that actually creates more life and attracts more life and actually doesn't uh, actually increase wealth in one area or one population? Um, things that just those common things in all world religions of justice and equality and fairness and gentleness and humility. So because, you know, that's where I may be divergent, but I feel like we're in a time of human supremacy and the human monoculture. And until we open our heart and field and consciousness to other life, we're, we're going to keep, we're not, we're not going to be here forever. And that's true too. I mean, in a, in a cosmic way, I also realize the sun is going to swallow the earth at some point and re, you know, planetary nebula and that I'm talking to you. I'm a remnant supernova that came to earth and now I'm here. So it, yeah, I just want to come back to the, we know, I, I just see it in the youths. I'm getting more calls from friends with their kids and teenagers that are depressed and suicidal than ever in my life. I'm getting multiple calls a week about people in emergency and their children in emergency. And their children are looking at the current trajectory and just seeing from a deep learning that this is a, this is what's happening is not working. I'm feeling separated. And I think youth is a good place to look because they're coming in and then saying, I'm just in my bedroom all night. Uh, teenagers in person now, it's like a ranging from studies 40 to 7 percent reduction of in-person togetherness this is before covid all these things are just what as a social animal again makes us social we can study if we want to get out of the like human like analysis animals that are put in cages and put in unnatural settings start to show trauma and mental illness whether it's a crocodile or a monkey or a hyena and I think that's where we are right now. We are constantly in human-made, again, the, the cultural monoculture. So it's actually false diversity. It's not coming from multiple lives. It's all coming from one uh, homo sapien. And so I want real diversity, not just humans creating what seems like pseudo-solutions and pseudo-diversity. And with all that said, what you'd said before about the 7-Up commercials, I think an essential piece is 
for cultural change is self-love and self-forgiveness and self-empowerment that we have to keep remembering that we are sacred beings and that what we need to look at is what actions we're taking that are creating harm and to work on the actions because I, I don't want to have this interview end up having people feel bad or I'm on the computer and I'm participating in uh, extraction. It's more of how do we say I'm a beautiful person and this action I'm taking, how do I, again, if it's not in alignment, how do I shift it and how do I change it? And I know from a lot of wealthy people, I haven't had a personal talk with Elon Musk, but I bet if I had a one-on-one -on -one with him, it'd be similar to some of my friends who have mansions and BMWs and are divorced and separated from their kids. Most of my friends who I know who are in the million plus or more, every single one of them are miserable. They don't show that in public. They have these big firms and everything looks good and everything's like, yeah, but when I talk to them in a real one-on-one, -on -one, they're like, I'm just stressed. I have no connection with my kids. I'm overwhelmed. So I, I think that's also important to, when you say like these people are following their hearts. We can't assume that till we have a real authentic, vulnerable conversation with a human being. And I think we're like Facebook. There's so many images of what, oh, look at my great life. But so many of those people I know are struggling. I think they're struggling because we are beautiful people in an insane system that's not working for us to be connected and loving and not lonely. Yes. <laughs> I have about 15 other <laughs> questions, yeah. but um, I'm going to stop there. I just want to recognize that there's a part of me that wants to find your loophole and I don't fully resonate with all of the perspectives that you have but I resonate with your heart and the fact that you're doing um exactly what you feel is where your heart is is leading you to and to me I just want to celebrate that and um and I'm inspired by that and yeah I guess my point about someone like Elon Musk you're right I don't know if he's literally following his heart and you know or if it's coming from a place of trauma or whatever it's probably a combination of all of the above. But I guess my point is that um, my heart right now feels very connected. I feel like I have a lot of meaning and purpose in my life right now. I feel really stimulated. I, I'm in a bit of a flow state at this very moment talking with you over Zoom on a computer using audio recording device that's run with batteries. And, and it's hard for me to, to reckon that, to reckon that, um, consciousness has created this moment of flow for me where I'm talking about the harms of technology while using technology and how to wrestle with that paradox and that conflict and um, and and also knowing that I've really made a lot of efforts in my personal life to the best of my abilities of you know I've been off all social media for a couple of years now and it's it's been amazing I would highly recommend it to anyone out there I haven't missed it for a single day and um yeah there's there's so many it, it, I remember a few years ago when I started this journey into reducing the amount of basically support that I was giving the capitalist structure as well as um, my usage of technology it felt 
very daunting and almost impossible and almost a little bit silly, but I was really shocked at how actually easy it was. It was really quite easy to make some very substantial steps towards living a more environmentally conscious lifestyle, towards reducing my use of technology, towards finding other ways of, um, of feeling connected, like going on walks in nature, for example, instead of watching a movie in my bed. And um, yeah, I trusted that was the medicine that I needed at that point in my life. And that what I'm doing now is, is also the medicine that I need for both myself and the collective and, and all of life and all its forms. So for now, I'll just, I'll just hold on to that. And I'm really grateful, Ethan, for, for you being such a beautiful mirror and role model and uh, example of what's possible. And I want to ask if there's anything else alive for you that you'd like to share before we um, post this podcast on the internet. <laughs> yeah. I just thank you for wrestling in the paradox. And um, I ho hope that it may lead to where we can be in a field with full access to anyone who wants to be there to be circled and having these conversations um, and that we're on a trajectory, I hope to more connection and more belonging. And that's really what I'm desiring. And I wanna also share that not just Elon Musk, like I have a circle of friends where we're already always asking, is this fully what you want in the world? What are the costs to other people and ecosystems? Like I have to, I think it's healthy to constantly ask like, what is motivating me to make these choices? And I do that daily. And I think that kind of self-reflection is so important. So I just want you to know and everyone to know, I don't feel like I'm following my full heart and it hasn't been revealed. And I'm going to keep asking and looking at impacts and harm and learning and, you know, the possibility on its experiment as it was in 2007 is something totally different because we take a step towards the beautiful world that our hearts know is possible as Charles Eisenstein says, and then we get feedback that, oh, we're replaying white supremacy, where we're replaying, you know, heteropatriarchy. And then we, then the question is, what do we do with that feedback? And how do we let that feedback really impact us um, to allow for grief and uncomfortableness, as Brene Brown says, like we have to learn to be uncomfortable with this work of undoing shame. So I just think it's important to know, yeah, we're all sacred in the systems that exist right now uh, are leading us to the, ex the brink of extinction and a lot of, has already been lost. And how do we just keep listening and keep taking a breath and looking at what, what's motivating our choices and our arguments and, and move towards, again, that climate ecosystem where the most life and most love and most diversity can exist. Um, yeah, and it's it's hard, paradoxical, complex moment. So I, I hold myself and you, Tucker, and everyone with courage and clarity and prayers for for gentleness and love's fire as we move forward to to a, a world where all species can live together and people.
<sighs> Amen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you again, and I appreciate the questions. And I'm, yeah, I feel one thing that's arising that Picasso said. He said, <clears throat> "The reason I don't use computers is they only give answers, and I prefer questions." And so to to sit in these questions and see where it leads to next, I think is a great invitation for all of us. All right. Cheers to the questions. Thank yeah. you, Ethan. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tucker. Have a beautiful day. All right. Thank Bye. you, too. If you'd like to contact Ethan, he can be reached at 207-338-5719. That's 207-338-5719. The Possibility Alliance mailing address is also available in the show notes. Until next time, I'm your host, Tucker Walsh. Have a beautiful day.